Hey, welcome to the Forge America Missional Podcast this week. I am your host, Roland Smith, and I'm here with Alan Bradford in Knoxville, Tennessee. What's up, Alan? Hey, good to, uh, good to be here. We are in the middle of uh, the uh, Tennessee flooding season right now, so uh, learning to build a boat with the rest of my uh, staff here in the offices. Oh, man. That sounds sounds bad, or maybe good. You could maybe you could fish right out of your office or something. <laughs> soon it won't be too won't be soon. too far. Yep. Soon we're missing our uh, our counterpart Terry Ishi. He's uh, he's got some training that he's doing with some church leaders in Austin uh, right now, so he is not on with us. Hey, we've got a great interview and a great discussion coming up with Mark Demaz. Mark's an old friend of mine. Uh, we go way back. Um, from Arkansas, uh, but more importantly, Mark just came out with a new book on uh, church economics and why churches cannot uh, rely on tithes and offerings uh, to keep going in the future. And so, a really, really interesting read. I think it's timely, and we got a chance to kind of sit down and talk to him. So we'll we'll do that in a minute. And um, coming up. On this interview um, in this episode it made me uh, just kind of think of some of the cultural trends um, that we've been experiencing um, this last week uh, I heard uh, like Macy's closed 125 stores or they're gonna close 125 stores over three years have you ever shopped at Macy's Roland I have shopped at Macy's um, yes Yes, uh, I have to admit I have shopped at Macy's. It's usually have, has been for my wife <laughs> or taking my daughters, uh, but we do have a Macy's here. And I don't even know if I've ever stepped foot into a Macy's. I have no yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. actually. So I, I might cool. be. Uh, so apparently, I'm the reason they're closing. Just they're closing. Me. That's the reason they're closing. But what's really interesting is that they're closing these stores that are in in malls, and actually, they're going to open stores that are smaller and are in neighborhoods. So they're more like storefronts. And um, so I, I just found that intriguing because uh, I don't know if you have any malls in your area, but like we have a mall close to our house, a couple of malls actually, that it's kind of weird. It's like the stores are changing over. It's like they used to be, you know, retail locations of clothing and stuff like that. And now you'll see like, really weird things in the mall, right? That are renting, renting spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, no. So we've got some major malls here in, in my area and one of them, one of the major malls just completely shut down. It was like, it was huge news around here. Everybody's walking through the mall as the whole thing is closing. It's been around for 30, 35 years, but then also just recently was like two hours east of here uh, with our staff. And we ended up going to a movie in a mall and got there a little early. So we just started, let's walk around this mall for a little bit. And most of the mall was shut down, like 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 seventy percent of it. The the it, they just actually put up walls. Uh, they tried to make it look as if nothing was there. They just put up walls. Uh, mm -hmm. It was just this sparse area. So you could definitely say something's changing. Something's going on. You could see it, right? Um, and the way that people are doing this stuff. Yeah, right. Here's a guy named uh, Mel McGowan. I met uh, at Saddleback a long time ago, and he's. Uh, He's worked with Disney and all these different places. He's kind of an architect and environmental specialist um, designer. And he had posted on Facebook about a mall that had been shut down and they totally transferred it, transformed it into housing for the homeless, which is hmm. ingenious, right? To yeah. go in there and just kind of turn every storefront 
into places where the homeless can sleep and that kind of thing. Um, but it just made me wonder, you know, is there, is there like this cultural shift from the big, the institutional, um, the one-stop shop to a smaller um, kind of neighborhood community approach to things? You know, maybe yeah, definitely. we're shifting back, you know? Yeah, definitely. If you think about the place of mall inside of culture, um, like if you remember, um, okay, uh, I, I love kind of seeing um, big trends in culture. So like you have the idea of the the zeitgeist of your culture, the cultural trends, whatever's going on. Um, uh, think about this. Think about zombie movies. Yeah. Um, and if you remember uh, some of the early Romero movies, uh, they did this a couple of times where they would find themselves in the mall. Right. They kind of held, yeah. they kind of like barricaded themselves up in the mall. And Romero actually did it as kind of a critique of that culture, uh, but the place that it's had inside of our society. And now I, I think you're seeing the same thing in um, malls that you see in churches. Let me, let me explain. Uh, you've got some malls that are just going to continue to thrive, right? It's like the right. mega mall, the huge mall. And yeah. then you've got some of the smaller ones that are just starting to shut down. They just, it's not working anymore. Why? Cause those stores are changing. They're, they're moving, like you said, to, mm -hmm. to more neighborhood stuff. Like the big, the big switch around here is the, um, the Walmart stores, as opposed to the huge box store, you have the neighborhood store, just like you right. said, Macy's doing. Um, so business is getting it. Like they're going, Hey, there's something going on in culture. Things are changing. The, the, the waters have, have taken us into different areas. How are we going to change? Um, it's a fascinating topic to kind of enter into and to think about. Yeah. And Walmart, um, some of the best marketers, I think that we've seen in our lifetime, they even call those small uh, box stores, they call them neighborhood markets. So they put the word neighborhood yeah. in the name. We have one yeah. of those close to our house. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. And, you know, it makes me wonder about ecclesiology too, and kind of how we do church um, and possibly are we, you know, are people, is culture wanting a shift to more of a, a smaller incarnational um, kind of approach to church as opposed to just going to a big box setup? You know? Yeah, I think, I think that the, the suburban culture, the backlash of suburban culture uh, is, is happening. It has happened. It's happened in the major cities where people are saying, I don't want to live that life anymore. I don't want to live in the suburbs and commute into the city for 25, 30 minutes a day. Uh, one way. Um, and so they're saying that the backlash is pe people are becoming more rooted. The idea of just moving everywhere, going to all these different places, saying, no, I want to kind of narrow my context down and say, how do I actually um, live, work, play, worship everything within, I don't know, just this, this few miles. Not that you don't travel, not that you don't go out, uh, but definitely kind of a, a critique and a backlash of suburban culture. Right. And we, I mean, my family, we just moved from suburban Colorado Springs, like, you know, 25 minutes from downtown, we moved right down into the heart of the city. And what we found is um, when we talk to people, everyone, when we tell them we've moved, they go, you know, their response is, oh man, that's awesome. I wish I could do that because everyone wants to just kind of walk the neighborhood streets, you know, walk up to the park uh, walk to the little restaurants that are kind of around and we've very much um, not been driving as much, you know, and just yeah. kind of walking around our area, you know? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, of course, this you, also brings up all the topics of like gentrification and all that, but that's that's for uh, yeah. a totally different time. <laughs> I know. Not right now. It, well, and it is a tension. I mean, they're they're doing a bunch of development in downtown Colorado Springs, and so we're afraid, you know, it's going to get unaffordable. Um, we're actually afraid we're going to start looking like Denver and not be as weird, you know, <laughs> as we are. So <laughs> we want to keep the weirdness, you know, the tattoo parlors and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, you were talking about. Um, a, cu- a couple of words on a topic around pivoting and stuff. I, what what was that? Yeah, that yeah. So, so this is actually uh, something I've been exploring for our faith community. So I am a pastor at a church here in Knoxville, Tennessee called Crossings. And we've been around for 13 years. Um, and we've been, you know, in the missional conversation. We're a forge hub doing that stuff. Uh, but after 13 years, you start to get a little uh, settled is not the word. But, you know, you're always fighting the concept of becoming an institution. Um, you want to you want to be a movement. You want to be about what God's doing, and so we've been really kind of talking and thinking about this idea. And it actually comes from the business world uh, between a pivot or persevering. So a pivot is when you uh, say, for example, the business world, um, you have a company. So like Macy's, Macy's is is right now. They said, hey, what we're doing, it doesn't quite work. We've been in malls. That was the the cultural mecca for consumers for a long time. But they go, it's not working. So they're going to pivot their model. So pivot means you keep one foot and kind of what you've done, but you're changing a little bit. You change a direction or anything like that versus, Hey, I'm going to persevere. I'm just going to put my head down and I'm going to keep going. Now in the business world, um, it's not an, it's not like, Hey, one's right, wrong, good, bad. Sometimes you just need to persevere. Sometimes you do need to put your head down and do it. But there are really times where we need to say what's going on around us. Mm -hmm. Uh, what, what are the, how do we become um, students of the culture? How do we become students of uh, society and say, Hey, what, what are we doing? And how is it, how is it impacting, um, you know, the, the people around us? What are we, how are we, how are we doing this? What are our blind spots? What, what's going on? And sometimes you really do need to pivot. You need to kind of say, Hey, we're going to change a little bit here. There's actually a great book um, that I've not read yet, but one of our forge hubs told me about it and it's on my list, but it's called canoeing the mountains or canoeing mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and the concept was Lewis and Clark were charged with how to uh, get from one side of the country to the other using a waterway. So they yeah, yeah. would take canoes. So they did it, but then they encountered the Rocky mountains and you can't <laughs> canoe the mountains, right? right? So they had to abandon what they were doing and they had to say, Hey, we got to go do, we got to figure out another way. We got to do something else. Sometimes we hold on to what's got us to this point so hard that right. it, you, you just—it's like no, this—you're not going to move forward until you've let it go, or until you've pivoted, until you've, until you've changed some things. Does that right. make sense? Yeah, that's a great—that's um, a great example, and that's that's some of the stuff that I think uh, Mark talks about in this book as well. And he, you know, he's really trying to help—he's um, ha- trying to help churches. you know, uh, get through these times, not just persevere, but to uh, innovate and think differently so that uh, their ministry can flourish, you know, so they can do the things they're called to do in the context where uh, they are planted. And and I think it it not only has implications for larger churches or medium-sized churches, but especially for missional practitioners and church planters that are trying to think about, okay, I've got this, I want to, I want to do this church community uh, in a particular area. And so what do I need to do in order for this to flourish? And sometimes yeah. church planners are just, 
you know, right out of the shoot, they think, okay, I just need to find a middle school and, and buy a bunch of folding chairs and some screens and projectors. And, and, you know, and I'm not saying what's right or wrong for any one person, but I would ask the question and I do ask the question of planters like that. Is there a different way that you could actually set up your ecclesiology? You know, how, how could you innovate? Um, so that you're doing, you're still selling the same product, which is not church. The product is announcing the kingdom, right? And so there's a lot of different ways um, to do that. I've been to your place uh, a couple of times to crossings and I love the setup. The first time I walked into uh, from the street to get to the offices at crossings, um, it was the weirdest walk that I've ever had into a, I'll just call it into a church, you know, for lack of a better phrase. Um, but I mean, can you like explain a little bit for people uh, so they can yeah. kind of visually think about crossings and how you guys are set up? Yeah. So early on, we just kind of just said, you know, most churches that you, you know, the idea is like you grow up and you get a building, right? You know, a church yeah. plant, that's yeah. what you want to do. You want to grow up, you want to get a building. And we just said, nah, I just don't know if that's the best use of our finances. Um, that's not the best use of what we have. So um, after we, we planted in a movie theater, and then after uh, about six months in a movie theater, uh, somebody came to us and said, hey, there is this vision for a building. It's smack dab downtown Knoxville. Uh, it's a four-story building, and on the first floor is going to be a restaurant, and there's going to be a concert venue. We're going to have offices in there, and there's another church that's that's already agreed to be in there. They want to do some things on Sunday nights. Would you guys like to be a part of it? And we were like, yeah, we do. So it took them about two years to get this building uh, up and running, um, so, but they got it up and running. It's a huge kind of um, redevelopment project in downtown Knoxville, a lot of different businesses, and we're in what's called Market Square. It's the heart of the city. And so we, on Sunday mornings for our gatherings, uh, one of our sites we meet here, it's what's called the square room. It's a concert venue. And then we have offices up on the third floor of this building with uh, other people. Um, so we, we rent out these, these two offices, two big, huge rooms. And then uh, the, the other church that meets with us here on Sunday nights, they have offices down there as well as some other organizations. But it's great to be able to have this shared space, you know, just have right. this space. It's, we don't own it. Um, but we are, we have the opportunity to be here, to invest, to be a part of this community, to get to know the restaurant managers, um, to get to know the different people and, and to be able to have this collaboration with other people. Then we also have another site that meets at an elementary school um, that has actually has a theater. And to be honest with you, that's even been much more fun because in our downtown location, uh, there are people that live downtown, uh, but we have people that come from all over Knoxville. Yeah. really all over the county. Uh, but at our, our, our north location in the elementary school, it is much more geographic. And then the opportunity to have um, strong relationships with the school, with the administration, with the staff. Uh, we've been there, I think, now eight years. And it has been, it's been great. It's been awesome uh, to be able to have that relationship, be able to bless the school, serve the school, uh, partner with them, and just do uh, good things for their for their staff, the administration, and for the community as a whole. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I mean, I remember uh, the day I got out of the Uber and was walking in Market Square, which is super, super cool. Lots of, lots of restaurants, and it's just a walking pedestrian area. Um, and I'm sitting here looking for crossings. You know, like, where where is it? How do I find it? How do I get in there? 
And finally someone came out and fi- found me. I don't remember if it was you <laughs> or Mark Nelson or someone, or it may have been Molly, uh, came out and found me. And we, and we actually walked through a bar um, to the elevators and then went upstairs uh, to the offices. And I was like, man, this yeah. is like the, the strangest way into a church building, <laughs> but it's really cool because you walk yeah. right out of the building and you're right smack dab in the middle of downtown life. Right. Yeah. yeah here's what's yeah. wild about it is uh, even on Sundays, the only thing we'll do is we'll put out one little a frame sign. Like that's yeah. it. That's our, you know, you could easily walk by it. Um, but you know, we have a, we have a healthy community. We do a couple of gatherings, uh, but we're pretty anonymous. Um, yeah. Really, you don't, yeah. we don't advertise a lot. Uh, we're pretty anonymous. We, you know, you kind of really find us more by word of mouth uh, or the website. That's how most people find us. Um, to the point where a couple of years ago, uh, our local paper did a huge thing on kind of the revival of churches in the downtown area, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they listed all the churches in the downtown, all the established, you know, the ones that have buildings, yeah. kind of the main lines, all that stuff. And they never listed us. Yeah. <laughs> then they did a re-edit where they're like, oh, hey, we left these people out and here's some more. And they never listed us. And if you just went sheer number wise, we're probably the largest gathering. Oh, in uh, downtown. Yeah. In downtown, which at first we were like, oh, that seems like a slight. But then you're like, no, actually, there's something to that anonymity. Uh, because a lot of the times in these in this article, it was about how they're trying to, you know, how they're trying to grow their thing, right? Like yeah. I, we need we need more people yeah. to come, do all this stuff. And it's like Ah, what about what about about you know helping people understand the kingdom and receive the kingdom and be about what God is doing in their neighborhoods and things like that? And if you want to come join us as we worship and and gather like that, great, that's awesome. But what are you doing in your neighborhood? What are you doing where you're where you're at? So yeah, it's been good. Now I, I know Roland. Uh, I've not actually had the opportunity to be Colorado Springs yet, but I've heard a lot about your place, uh, Pulpit Rock. That's <laughs> Yeah, which is As you always say, name. yeah, you yeah. always say that you're like, it's pulpit rock. It has nothing to do with rock and roll and or the pulpit or the pulpit. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I know that you guys, uh, you guys, you were telling me a story about how you guys are, are doing something that just fascinates me with your building. Yeah. I mean, when, and they had, they set this up before I got here, but, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that, um, Mark is going to talk about that you'll hear about is thinking, rethinking about your property and the, and the, uh, what your church has and thinking about how can it actually help uh, fund and produce more ministry. And so Pulpit Rock um, early on uh, had a, an agreement with a non-faith-based charter school in the area. So instead of, instead of a church meeting in a school, we have a school secular school that meets in a church. And so we rent the facility to them for the whole school year. And there's like 400 students. Um, and, and the facility's nice and it's, you know, it's pretty big. Um, but we lose the facility during the day, during the week, because there's 400 kids around. They've got most of the classrooms and they pay a substantial amount of money for rent. And we're actually a good deal for them. Um, and what it allows us to do is, you know, if we have something missional we want to do or we want to support um, some effort uh, in the city or do something special, it has allowed us that that kind of buffer and that comfort zone uh, to be able to do that, to give away money. You know, so we we resist hiring more staff. Um, we're right across the street from 
one of the larger colleges in the state, and it's actually the fastest growing college in the state. And uh, one of the first meetings I had when I came on staff here a couple of years ago was, should we have a college pastor or not? And I knew what I was thinking, but I was the new person in the room, so I wasn't going to speak at first, right? And they decided on their own, we're not hiring a college pastor. We're not starting a college service. Um, we're actually going to support the organizations and a couple of micro churches that are in the neighborhood right next to us. Um, and so we actually help support a house church that does a better job of reaching students than we could, you know, with a Sunday morning service. I mean, we have college kids that walk across the street to Sunday morning services, but we don't market it um, at all. So anyway, so we have, we have a pretty nice large facility. Terry's actually been here um, on a Sunday morning, but um, a lot of it is funded through partnership with a secular organization. So um, it's just kind yeah. of a cool way to rethink about, you know, your property and kind of what you own. Yeah. And that's, a, I mean, that's a huge posture shift for a lot of us. Um, even yeah. just the stuff you talked about there about, Hey, we're not going to hire a college minister. The posture of that is huge to say, how do we join other organizations doing this so well? For so long, it seems like the church has been like, try to be the one-stop shop for all religious goods and services. How does each church, you know, minister to everybody in my city, in my town, do everything for everybody. Um, where you kind of go, you know what, maybe that's not what God's calling us to do. How do we do what we do well? and come alongside other organizations. Uh, we have the same posture here at Crossings where we've said, you know what, we're not gonna try to start all these huge new initiatives. How do we, how do we keep um, an environment open for people to be able to dream big dreams and have a vision for what God's calling them and come alongside them and equip and empower them? A big part of that is Forge. You know, right. there's a little plug for, the, right. you know, for Forge, but that's, that's a, you know, how do we do that? How do we equip and empower people? Because they're gonna do so much more than say, you know, one person's vision from the hierarchy of, uh, you know, an organization. Right. Well, and, you know, Forge gets that from um, bigger thinkers that, you know, they've been talking about like Missio Day for a long time. So, you know, from Visitum and Bosch and Newbegin and Mike Frost and Alan Hirsch and, and all these people that we, uh, read and know and are part of our tribe as well. Um, just this idea that God's already at work in different places. And so our, you know, one of the biggest things we say is that we just, we look for where he's at work and join him in that work. And so instead of the church kind of being this, come and see us, we want to, we want to help churches shift and have a posture of kind of go and be not just in an outreach kind of way, but, um, and not with the agenda of more butts in the seats or members at our building, but to join God, you know, in what he is doing in the world. So, um, and I think, I think this conversation with, with Mark um, has some real implications for that. And I think a lot of churches, uh, just my guess over, you know, maybe the next 10 years, they're going to be forced to kind of, uh, like you say, they're going to have to choose. Do we just persevere or are we going to pivot and kind of innovate what we do? And I think what, what Mark is so good at, he's kind of prophetic in this way is that he sees that coming already. And, um, and I know I've heard it from different churches, you know, just struggles with budgets and, 
um, getting people in the building and pastors are tired of just kind of um, having to do that all the time. You know, they've lost their heartbeat of why they got into ministry. Yeah. I, I ask a lot of, you know, like a lot of pastors, especially young pastors, like what's worth giving your life to. And to yeah. be honest with you, the show, trying to get people just to come and listen to somebody else teach or preach or do whatever. Uh, it's not worth giving my life to. I, I still remember I had somebody um, when I was getting into ministry, uh, somebody I respect said something to the effect of what's going to be like, you're a salesman for Jesus. And I was huh. like, whoa, 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 that, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, yeah. like, that's not something I want to be a part of at all. It's not worth giving my life to, but helping people receive the kingdom, helping people be a part of what God's doing in their everyday life. Oh, I'd give my life to that. How would sure. I do that? Um, and I think that resonates with a lot of pastors, a lot of people. And especially when it comes down to now the, the coming financial crunch. I mean, uh, you know, as, as pastors and leaders, we just have to define reality. And that's what Mark DeMaz right. de does great in the book. He starts to define reality. He said, look at the cultural trends that are happening. The current system is not going to keep us going. Right. And so what are you going to do? Um, right. And I think define reality, say it's not going to work. I don't want to spend my life just saying, hey, we need to raise money to keep a broken system already going. I don't know if that's, I don't, I don't think we need to just keep persevering. We need to pivot. We need to change yeah. somehow. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, that's a good on-ramp to, uh, to this interview. So let's, uh, let's jump on the interview and kind of listen to Mark talk about this. Holding up a stupid smile Make this All right. Well, welcome. And we are uh, really glad to have uh, Mark DeMoz on uh, today. Uh, Mark is a longtime friend. And uh, uh, before I get into any of the other introductions, uh, we both hail from Arkansas. And uh, Mark is still there. I've moved to Colorado Springs, but uh, we've known each other for, for years and years. Um, Mark is the founding pastor, one of the founding pastors and directional leader for Mosaic Church. Uh, which is a multi-ethnic uh, church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, a lot of people uh, know him for his leadership in the discussion surrounding intentional ethnic diversity in churches. Uh, but recently, Mark's kind of entered and in, in is helping create a new discussion around church sustainability. Um, in his new book, uh, The Coming Revolution in Church Economics, um, why tithes and offerings are no longer enough and what you can do about it. I love that, uh, that byline, that subtitle uh, is causing some stir um, around church leaders. And so uh, Mark, we are excited to have you on and to kind of talk about this issue of, of giving and finances and more importantly, how we could be innovative. Right. And Likewise, uh, hey, well, thanks for, yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, thanks for having me. And by the way, congratulations on your own book last year. That That's exciting. And, and to see some of your thoughts and perspective put into print. Uh, I was excited that you did that and excited it came out. So congratulations on that, but great to be with you. Yeah. Today. Thanks. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Well, Hey, kind of give us the, let's just kind of launch in give us a little bit of the premise um, behind this new book, the, the coming revolution in church economics, kind of explain that phrase to us. Uh, it's a little bit new and, uh, why, why we should care about it. Yeah. Well, it's a super important, uh, issue and topic. Uh, I, I just start with kind of, let me just start with almost a shocking statement. 
I would contend that most pastors in the United States today, when it comes to church economics and finance, all they're doing is managing decline. That's it. They are simply managing decline, and most, like the frog in the kettle, don't even realize it. I mean, yes, they see stagnant tithes and offerings, and uh, potential, uh, and yes, there's decline in attendance for many churches on Sunday mornings. Uh, as people go to the physical location of the church less and less in a busy society, et cetera. So they're seeing, in fact, even just the average offering dropped from roughly 70, uh, 150 to 125,000 between 2009 and 2014. Average church size went from 75 to 50 roughly. So pastors, yes, are seeing that, but, but to date, there hasn't been a recalibration to understand that the, the system of our economics, our economic system as a church is broken and it's not coming back. And that's essentially what the book is about, talking about, of course, we're going to encourage tithes and offerings and receive them. Of course, we're going to continue to encourage generosity as biblically ordained by God. But but those, the traditional model of church funding will not be enough. It's already not enough, and it won't be enough long-term to sustain churches. And not, not just that they survive, but they actually thrive in the future. We're going to have to supplement tithes and offerings through grants and donations, and ultimately through for-profit business enterprise, uh, which contrary to popular opinion is legal. Uh, but this is essentially what the book is about. Okay. Well, so I, I know a little bit about the story of Mosaic and how you, how you found your way kind of into this thought process naturally, really, to, uh, you know, for the sustainability of your own church community. And so uh, could you explain maybe a little bit about some of the things Mosaic is doing uh, to give us a picture of what this looks like? Yeah, uh, sure. And, and even part of answering that question is really reflecting both on the society as well as what we have learned and experienced here that I think will affect all churches. But in society, in terms of this idea that tithes and offerings won't be enough, consider this. Uh, people born before 1964 give roughly 70 to 80 percent of all the income that's given to the church is done by people born before 1964. People born after 1964, it's called a generational shift in attitudes towards giving. Uh, it's, they see money differently. They give money differently. So that's a problem. Uh, wealth gaps and in, in, in income inequality between people groups, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, which is traditional in this country, uh, that too is affecting the church because as the society becomes more diverse, that means the income wealth gaps or the income disparity and in wealth gaps are more pronounced in the church. And that too is affecting uh, revenue that will be able to be generated by tithes and offerings. So there, there's a, those are just a couple of the societal shifts that are happening sure. that are affecting revenues. But then when you're actually reflecting, when your church moves into the space of reflecting ethnic and economic diversity, uh, pursuing social justice and compassionate work in its local community, what we began to experience early on, and we started this church in 2001 in the urban center of Little Rock, 30% Poverty, 66% of kids without dads in the home, highest violent crime in the city. When, when you are pursuing churches that reflect their communities, um, you quickly realize that the more people that join your church, it costs you money. Hmm. And that was a complete shift because, as you know, uh, I left a white suburban Republican megachurch of 5,000 people in the suburbs of Little Rock 
uh, to uh, to essentially establish this work, this missional work in in the urban center of Little Rock. Well, when you uh, back in the '90s, you know, '93 to 2001, when I'm there, I mean, cash flowed freely in that church. Uh, again, 5,000, think white, upper middle class to professional people, um, very disciplined in their giving, uh, on and on. There, we were flush with cash. And I could talk about that a, a little bit in the book. But the point is, establishing this kind of church with the ethnic and the economic diversity and, 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 and all that's involved in exporting justice and compassionate work in the community, we simply could not um, execute the vision God put on our heart if it was completely dependent on tithes and offerings, right? So in other words, I, sure, I might have my little church of 100, 150 people. I got a secretary, I got a janitor, and the tithes and offerings take care of everything, fine. But when you've got 30% poverty and the highest violent crime, and you're trying to, to make an impact in the community for the sake of the Christ, advance the common good in the gospel, and at the same time, build a healthy, multi-ethnic, economically diverse church, Again, we quickly realized tithes and offerings alone would not be enough uh, for us not only to sustain but, and survive, but to, but to thrive in the future. And that led us on this journey of how, where do we essentially get more money? Years ago, I heard Rick Warren say, you can't keep begging people for money. And I took that to heart. And as I thought about it in our context, I, I thought, okay, yes, tithes and offerings, but we began to make some fundamental shifts away from this traditional model of tithes and offering only in terms of funding for the church. Right. So two quick things we did. One is we shifted our justice and our compassionate work. Essentially, let's call that our local missions work. We shifted local mission work out from under the budget of the church and created an entirely separate nonprofit in our case, we call that vine and village. Christ is the vine intersecting the village. But we shifted out the works of local justice and compassion from the budget of the church and put it under the budget of this nonprofit. Now, without going into great detail, at a high level, what that does is it opens up this type of work to local, state, and federal grants. It opened us up to receiving um, donations and, and money from other churches, as well as people who would come and work these different programs in our nonprofit. Uh, think about it, in, in, in the American church, it's pretty rare for one church to write a check to another church. But what we found by creating a separate nonprofit to export our local mission, um, we found that churches willingly wrote us checks. They didn't write it to Mosaic Church, they wrote it to Vine and Village, which again, we have a number of, of, of programs that Im impact the community. And or they will send us their people to serve in these programs beyond what our body could otherwise support, not only in terms of money, but in terms of people resources to bring these programs to the community. So by making that fundamental shift, we were able to establish a second large income uh, stream, a multiple streams of income, tithes and offerings through the church, but then grants and donations to fund the local mission. But then beyond that is where we, we got into the establishment of for-profit business enterprise which is like a, three leg of the, a third leg of this stool, uh, the church being one, the nonprofit a second leg, and then for-profit business enterprise. So in our case, for instance, and it took us many years, 12 years, so don't, you know, I wouldn't want anybody listening to think this happens overnight, but you know, it took us 12 years, but we finally in 2016 uh, purchased and moved into a 100,000 square foot former Kmart. Well, uh, and, and, and we took that Kmart and, quickly rented half of it to a major suburban fitness club that moved into the inner city. We gave them great pricing, low pricing on their rent, 
but it pays half our mortgage. Um, and, and so, and that, and then they sunk 1.7 million into the building. The building rose in value from 1.5 to 4.1 in five years. We went from a 1.1 uh, or 1.1 uh, $1 million uh, where we had to borrow 1 million to get in the building. Now we have over 1 million in equity in the building in just five years. That led us to, to generate and start other businesses. Uh, and so, and to learn essentially that whether by rent, monetizing existing service of outright starting new businesses, we could generate for-profit business income that could supplement our tithes and offerings. And so at the end of the day, as of right now, our church's budget is 1.2 million a year. Of course, we were a church plant, 19 years took to get there. Uh, but of that 1.2, only 70% is funded by tithes and offerings. And the other 30% through grants, donations, and for-profit business enterprise. And the way I say that to pastors is this. If I could show you, teach you, if you will, a way to generate or to have 30% additional income to your current budget, would you be interested? Mm -hmm. I could also flip the question and say, what if right now you had to cut 30% of your budget? 30% was gone overnight. And we haven't even talked, Graham, uh, Graham that's your brother, Roland. Yeah. We haven't even talked about the potential for uh, the local, state, federal government to tax your property, take away tax exempt status. So the point is, if you lost 30% of income overnight as a church, who gets let go? What program gets shut down? Could you even afford to stay in the building you're at? For all these reasons, both societal and what we've learned, this is the reason that now is the time to pivot in the American church. That I mean, that's ironic, that number that you give me at 30%, because I was just talking to uh, a church leader that, that was saying that their giving was 30% behind last year. Wow. And, and you know, we're, we're seeing all kinds of trends and uh, polls and things coming out that just that kind of show more and more challenges, right, to yeah. uh, traditional church thinking. So I know you're not a, like a tax attorney and we're not giving tax advice or anything like that on, on uh, this episode, but talk, can you talk a little bit about um, what the legalities are around searching out for-profit business inside of a nonprofit uh, church? Context. Yeah, well, I appreciate the way you frame that question because it is super important for anyone listening. Don't just take my word for it, for instance. You definitely need to talk with a, a tax attorney, a lawyer, as you uh, implement, begin to implement some of the ideas and thoughts and suggestions that we put forth in the book. So definitely that's a super important step, getting a business people, attorney, tax accountant involved in, in what you do. Having said that, um, the, the erroneous thinking of pastors is really twofold. There's a spiritual side and a legal side. You ask the question of legal, I'll stay with that. It's erroneous to think that churches can't make money. Um, that is not true. Any nonprofit, it doesn't even have to be a Christian nonprofit. A nonprofit in this country, by law, is allowed to form under the nonprofit a for-profit entity, like an LLC, for instance. Mm -hmm. That's totally legal. And, and there's just a few conditions that are required for a church to have what is called unrelated business income um, and, and or to start an LLC, let's say, uh, whereby the church benefits under the nonprofit. So a few of those things that keep you out of legal jeopardy, uh, and again, there's just two or three, but one is this. If a nonprofit is making or generating unrelated business income tax, it's got to pay the taxes. Okay, so in other words, if I create a coffee shop, if the church creates a coffee shop, and we're generating unrelated business income, for-profit income, 
Well, number one, we've got to pay taxes like any other business, any other coffee shop, Starbucks or Third Space Coffee like you own in Colorado Springs. Uh, we've got to pay taxes on that. So as long as we run a business and we make unrelated business income uh, and assuming just like any business, our, our, our net profit was over our expenses, then yeah, we've got to pay taxes. So pay the taxes, right? Um, secondly, if, if your church, let's say your church started a, a business of some sort and was generating again income, um, the income, the net profit from that business uh, can't be divvied up amongst investors, for instance, or it can't go, in our case, we're governed by an elder board. It's not like we can say, hey, we made $10,000 last year in, in this business, and so let's all give ourselves a bonus of $1,000. Like, you can't do that. So the net profit, any net profit from a business um, that is owned by a nonprofit must be returned to the budget of the nonprofit. All right. So again, by paying the taxes like any other business and by ensuring that any profit, any net profit um, beyond the expenses of running the business is returned to the nonprofit to support the mission of the nonprofit and its budget. No problem at all. The, there's one other thing that's unique about this uh, uh, understanding of legalities, and that is that the IRS has said that, and this is the exact terminology, a substantial amount of your income as a nonprofit can't be um, made or generated through unrelated business income. So in other words, let's just say, and this isn't a legal statement, but if I, was, if I had a business, if the church had a business that it owned and operated, and that business was making 80 80% uh, of its revenue for the church, well, that's going to be a big red flag with the IRS, right? right? Now, so, but the fact is the IRS doesn't define this terminology, what is substantial income, right? right. So, so a lot of people say, well, don't go over 10 or 15%, but there is no, there is no standard. There's just that statement, which is left vague. And, and my deal is if I, if our church was so blessed to start a company that made, you know, I don't know, let's say it made a million dollars a year and our budget was 1.2. Well, we could just break that business out from being owned by the church and just create an entirely separate uh, business outside the church that could then donate those profits to the church. No problem at all. So, sure. but those are the three real key things. And again, most pastors do not realize you're not going to lose your tax income status by generating income, uh, but you have to do things properly and legally correct, and there is a way to do that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, we're kind of taught and trained, right, traditionally to think, okay, we're not supposed to make money because we're a church. So, I mean, we don't, we don't have an entrepreneurial uh, type thinking or spirit or whatever uh, about ministry um, at all. Uh, well, that's really cool. Um, so what are the, what are you seeing on the horizons? Cause I know you've, you make, you've made some statements about, um, the church and tax exempt status in the future. And I know there's quite a few people that are kind of forecasting some possible changes in that. Um, what, what do you kind of expect to see over time? Yeah, yeah. Well, if, if, if you wouldn't mind, let me go back to what you just kind of, uh, and, and I'll be glad to share some thoughts on what you just asked. But just before you said something that was super important, I don't want it to pass. And it's basically what we believe as pastors, what we've been taught, for instance, that somehow we're not supposed to make money. We're the church. Well, here's the deal. If you keep giving everything away for free, you're not going to be here in 10 years. So you have to think about sustainability, right? And that's really ultimately a matter of stewardship. 
So earlier I mentioned there's kind of a legal thing that pastors don't understand. We've not been taught. Uh, very few of us had business classes, economics classes, finance classes. Um, but not only is there a legal separation uh, but, uh, or, or concern that pastors don't get, but there's also a spiritual one. And, and the spiritual one is this. For instance, people might say, we should just be like George Mueller. Just pray and God will send the resources. Or pastor, just preach the gospel. Just preach Jesus and everything else will take care of itself, right? Well, when, whenever I've heard that or I hear that or I, I, I consider that from someone, uh, let's say, Roland, for a moment that you said that to me. Mark, I just don't think churches should be engaged in, in for-profit or making generating income. We just need to preach the gospel, preach Jesus, and trust God. And you said that to me. And you say, we need to exercise faith. I might say to you, I'd go, well, Roland, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been to the doctor? And you go, of course. You go, yeah. Have you ever taken prescription drugs? Yeah, I've done it. Have you ever signed a note and bought a car and, and you couldn't afford it with all your cash, but you signed a note and you borrowed money and, and promised to pay it back? And, and all, I could say, well, Roland, where's your faith? I could say, hey, Roland, do you get up every day and you go to work and you try to earn a living and you try to get raises? And I, I said, why are you doing that? Where is your faith, man? Just stay home, read your Bible all day, pray and go check your mailbox, right? Mm -hmm. my, 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 my point about that, in a, in a sense, a satirical point, is that individual Christians don't live like that. We just sit around, we pray, we read the Bible, we share the gospel, and then we just hope magically money to take care of ourselves and our families shows up in the mailbox. Well, if we as individuals don't live that way, why on earth would we expect that the church does? Also, exegetically speaking, good stewardship, as defined by none other than Jesus himself, was, hey, here you gave me five, here's your five, and I made you five. Right. Here's the, you gave me two, here's your two, I made you two. One guy in that story sat on his asset, and Jesus in the story says, the master says, wicked, lazy slave. The American church across the board in terms of its land, unused facilities throughout the week, money in the bank not being spent, a church of 65 people with a $2.5 million endowment in the bank, nobody's getting saved, the community's not being touched, but by golly, they're proud of their $2.5 million in the bank. We are sitting on billions of dollars of assets, and I think Jesus would say wicked, lazy slaves. Hmm. The goal, good stewardship isn't just about managing what you have, it's about leveraging what you have uh, to even get more so that you can do more and bless your master, namely Jesus Christ. Now, having said all that, that's kind of that faith side. Mm -hmm. And then what you talked about in terms of the forecast, yeah, um, the fact that Beto O'Rourke went on TV in a debate, I know he's not in the presidential race now, we're of course taping this in January of 2020, but last fall in 2019, a presidential contender in the Democratic side in a, in a town hall meeting on CNN talked about if he was elected, the potential and very leaning towards taking away tax exempt status for local churches. And he didn't say local churches, but basically it was related to the LGBTQ issues and all these different things. But here's my point. And Beto O'Rourke is out of the race. He's not going to be president, certainly in 2020. But the fact that this was even mentioned in a round table or a town hall meeting on CNN and put on the table, and in one sense, nobody batted an eye. It was just a point of discussion. That ought to shake every pastor to the core. The fact that that's even on the table for discussion. Now, what I believe is more likely and is already happening in a state like Pennsylvania is as local and state uh, governments are, as well as the federal government, particularly local and state who control property taxes, um, they're looking for more money just like everybody. And the church is a good mark for that money. 
and especially as the church seems to be aloof from and or disengaged from society and societal problems, that becomes a mark. So in the state of Pennsylvania, for instance, um, taxes are ta uh, churches are taxed on their property, on all their property except for the sanctuary. So most people listening to this podcast would probably be familiar with Rick Warren and Saddleback Church or Willow Creek in Chicago. But imagine if Orange County or you know, Chicago said to Willow Creek or in, in Orange County to Rick Warren, we are now going to tax your property. You have to pay property tax on all the buildings, all your parking lots, on everything you own, but we'll let you out of the sanctuary. What would be the tax bill every single year to Saddleback or Willow Creek? I, of course, I have no idea. Right. But let's just say it was a million dollars. Every year, that church, let's say Rick Warren at Saddleback, every year, let's say, because Orange County decides to tax its property, they got to come up with a million dollars in tithes and offerings based on the current model that are, that are given as unto the Lord's work that are then taken and given to Orange County in the form of property taxes, right? right? Think about this. How many tens of thousands of churches, if that was across the board, would go out of business overnight? They would not be able to pay that bill. And, and, and that's not even saying about anything about the potential for churches losing their tax income status, which isn't a birthright for the church. I, I, I've written about this. I, if I remember right, I'm going to say 1919 or 1920, somewhere in there. But, but, and I've written about it in the book. You can read. I don't remember off the top of my head. But churches were only given this right in the last 100 years or so. So what government gives, they can take away. And if one or both of those things happen, tens of thousands of churches instantly would go out of business. The time again to pivot is now. And if that was the case, how could we make, if, if you're Rick Warren, for instance, but on a smaller scale, how could we generate uh, enough money to pay our mortgage or potential property taxes through for-profit business enterprise, but do it in a way that blesses the community. That's super important. We're not about sitting back and leveraging the, our assets to just get big, fat, and happy as churches. No, we want to bless the community, right? And that means we might charge less for rent that other people would charge or uh, other monetary concessions. But at the end of the day, we've got to generate income for potential disruption that's going down the road. Right. Um, yeah. That, so in the, in this final few minutes we've got, um, I just, I want to turn the conversation a little bit toward, um, missional practitioners. Uh, a lot of our listeners are not going to necessarily be in larger churches, but, uh, we have a lot of church planters in our tribe, a lot of, uh, smaller kind of missional churches, um, that want to expand their ministry. And so what occurs to me as, as a missional practitioner is that this thinking of innovation and financing uh, the movement and expansion of the kingdom of God in some smart ways uh, is really important to missional practitioners. Uh, it, it certainly is important to the Rick Warrens of the world, world yeah. right, to sustain a larger church complex. Uh, but as you're planting a church in a place, um, maybe we should start thinking a little bit different rather than just, uh, you know, let's find a space to rent and, and buy a bunch of stuff and start some salaries and rely on people's uh, giving and generosity that maybe we should start with an entrepreneurial thought process as we plant into a new area. Uh, what yeah. would you 
think about that or say yeah, about for that. Sure. For sure. The entire economic system has got to change and church planting is one of those that's affected by that because basically right now you're only successful if you know people who can pump a ton of money into it long enough to get you to a point where your tithes and offerings cover your bills. Um, and that's a whole nother subject, but you're absolutely right. This affects missional, it affects everybody, but at, at a level of missional planting, et cetera, certainly. And I feel like I was a missional planter before missional was cool, if you will, right? So yeah. I, I've been, I've traveled, traversed that journey. Um, what, you, what you have right now in the language of, of the church and even in missional communities is, is bivocational and co-vocational. Right. So, you know, the, as, as you all know, hey, I'm, I, I, I really want to pastor, I'm planting this church, but I'm going to drive Uber to help supplement, pay the bills, so I'm bivocational. I don't want to do Uber forever, it's temporary. But then co-vocational, I appreciate Brad Briscoe's work on this and stuff, this idea that, no, I really feel called. Uh, you know, I've got a buddy of mine who owns an insurance company. He's been doing business for, you know, 30-something years. His company's like 50 employees. He's killing it, whatever. Then 17 years ago, he planted a church. He's never been paid one paycheck from the church. The church, you know, he's got all kinds of other staff and everything. But he's co-vocational because he, this is his passion. The church is his passion, being a pastor, as well as running his business and doing what it's co-vocational right? Right, right but i think there's the the thing beyond that though and and i don't believe much in vivo i i hope i don't offend anybody but i'm just saying relative to churches and now that how many churches uh, sustainability and bivocational it, it, it to grow and to be healthy probably you're going to end up wanting to get beyond bivocational right? right and so i don't mean to slam on it at all i'm just thinking beyond that if your church really took off, would you still be bivocational, right? Um, right. And, and because it would demand more of your time and more of your effort. And so to make a long story short, I'm, I'm just saying that I think there's something beyond particularly bivocational. And, and that is this idea that we could generate income. So instead of thinking like in bivocational, uh, I'm driving an Uber to supplement my income, right? So it's kind of dependent on me. But if we think about the collective church as, as, uh, as itself an entrepreneur, then we think what could we collectively at church do to generate income, right? right. And, and so instead of uh, if, I, if I could uh, purchase a building and I could put a deal together, purchase a building, all dependent on me renting out 80% of it that pays the bill for it, I've got a space. Or, or if I start a business like uh, many missional people want to do, um, then, then I'm generating the income there, but, and the church flows out of the business. So I don't want to wax eloquent like I'm an expert on this particular piece. I'm just saying that, yes, to the way church planning works right now, it's based on who you know and how much you can get on the front end. But I think there's a step beyond bivocational. If people understood what we're talking about in terms of church economics, I think their creativity will rise, the, the people they know, to, to do something that will help them really be full-time, which is what they want to do. Again, co-vocational is a different subject. But by practicing church economics, uh, leveraging assets to bless the community but generate sustainable income, you won't be necessarily dependent on tithes and offerings. And you can supplement not through Uber, right? Not by driving right. Uber, but you'll be able to supplement through monetizing existing services or potentially uh, starting a new business. And that's ultimately the goal. Real quick, I'll say this. Think about it, missional church planter, those of you listening, doing this. Think about this as like an American football team. If To win a big game as an American football team, you actually create three teams on the one team, offense, defense, and special teams. 
And you've got to have all three of those teams functioning at a very high level if, in fact, you're going to win the big game. So you could have a great offense, but if you have no defense, no special teams, you don't win the game. Think about this in terms of the church. You need a church as one team, if you will, in the overall operation, missional, small, large, whatever. Yes, you want a church that generates income, does the spiritual work, generates income through tithes and offerings. You also want a separate nonprofit whereby you can advance social justice, compassionate work, and, and thereby receive local, state, and federal funding through grants, et cetera. That opens another funding stream. And then the third, your special teams, if you, if you will, would be for-profit business enterprise. If you own a building or you can purchase a building and rent it to others like we did, you leverage your facility. Uh, instead of giving away free copy every Sunday, figure out a way to monetize that, to sell the copy, to retain more of your tithes and offerings. Instead of paying someone to clean your facility, uh, you know, start a janitor company, right? Uh, there, there's different ways you can monetize things you're already going to do as a church planter and or as a church. And lastly, as we said, or you can just start a new business. But, but, but the starting the new business in and of itself won't get it done. No more than just tithes and offerings alone will get it done. You need a multiple, what do they call it in business rolling, like a portfolio, if you will, right? right? right. You need to create multiple streams of income, tithes and offerings, grants, donations, for-profit business enterprise, ROI. And collectively, then, that moves your church from just surviving or your church plant from merely surviving, ultimately, to stability and someday to sustainability. Yeah, it, may, it makes me think of a conversation, really, I just, I had it over lunch uh, last week with a church planting couple, and um, they had at first thought about just starting kind of a traditional church plant. They have a big donor behind them, and um, they have uh, a heartbeat for the foster care uh, um, industry and helping with that. And, um, and so their church was going to lean into that. Well, the conversation eventually got to what if they started a daycare as respite care for foster families mm -hmm. as a business. And then the church ends up using that space to meet in, you know, so it was a whole radical yeah. shift in thinking, um, where they're going to do the same thing anyway, right? I mean, they're, they're going to do those two parts of their lives, but it's, right. it, but it's how do you take that passion, the calling that God has given you, and think a little bit differently about uh, missional church planting. In that yeah, well, context. what you're talking about is structural change, right, and how you structure this. So we, you know, church planting, you just think there's only one way to structure it, go out and borrow, you know, get people to donate to you so, and, and start your church, whatever. But what you're talking about is a structural change. No, that is a way to do things. There are other ways, many other ways to attack this. And that's super smart thinking for the way it is. Another way, given that example, is they could start the business for the foster care, get the building, like you said, and the church uses it. And or they could start a nonprofit, a separate nonprofit that's not a church, but it's a nonprofit focused on the community and perhaps foster care as a program. And through that, then generate local, state, and federal grants, other giving. Uh, and we did that. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking now. Yeah. I mean, we've done that. We started a program that uh, under our nonprofit uh, for kids who age out of foster care. Right. Um, within three years, we were getting, you know, we had $800,000 grants from the federal government that fund the whole thing for five years. Well, there's no way our little church and our budget could ever have done that. Yeah. And there's no way that if it had stayed under the church, and not shifted to, in our case, a nonprofit. You guys were talking about a for-profit, either way. But in our case, we started that nonprofit. 
we get millions of dollars in grants, it broke away and it's its own thing now. But again, we, we couldn't have done it if that was under the church's budget and we would never have been uh, eligible for local, state and federal grants to fund that work because it, they can't give to a church. Right. So again, right. we're thinking, we're talking about systemic shifts and structural change. And, and that's really probably the biggest thing to say to your missional church planters and or other people in this space that are, are, are thinking and listening to this podcast. There are, there, there is not just a way to do things. There is, there are multiple ways to do things, but the more you lean into business enterprise, I would, t- I would definitely say this Roland in the 20th century explanation is what brought people to Jesus. Uh, you bring Billy Graham to your city and he clearly explains the gospel. You share the four spiritual laws and people got saved on the beach. You went up to a stranger and shared it. Um, you gave someone the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict or More Than a Carpenter and, and Josh McDowell broke down the case and people got saved. That worked in the 20th century. In the 21st century, it's not explanation, but demonstration. Right. It's demonstration that's going to reach those who don't know Jesus and move them our way. And in my opinion, the strongest evangelistic strategy of the 21st century in order to demonstrate the gospel is just economics. Practicing just economics is the evangelistic strategy of the 21st century. And the church is ripe with potential opportunity, assets it already has, what it can aggregate in the future. But we are still thinking with a 20th century mentality as we approach economics in the church and evangelism and I think this is a way to do it. So it's not just about generating income for your church. It's ultimately about advancing a credible gospel in a missional way. And I believe just economics is the way to demonstrate the primary way that the world will listen to. When you're creating jobs and helping to repurpose abandoned property and you have measurable reduction in crime related to your, to your facility and you're generating tax revenue, that is, are, those are the things that get the attention of the lost. Uh, and, and that's what the church, I believe, has opportunity to do. And, and we should be doing it, but we're going to need to do it, as we've been discussing today on this podcast. Wow, that's great. And you're saying just economics in terms of justice, right? Exactly. Justice yeah. economics. In other yeah. Words, yeah. In other words, I don't want to just, as a church, use, use whatever leverage and assets we have to just, again, sit back, get rich, fat, and happy. It, like, it's all about us. No, I want to leverage my space to bless this community. I want to leverage the people and our money and our resources to do outstanding, excellent work in the community, advancing the common good and, and, and reducing crime and repurposing abandoned property mm-hmm. and all of the things we talked about. But at the same time, I've got to pick up some income on it. Right. Because again, if I give away all that, even if I could give it all away, in 10 years, I won't be here if I keep giving it away because sure. of economic disruption that's ahead. So yes, we want to do this for the community, but at the same time, we want to generate some measure of profit to supplement tithes and offerings. All right. Well, hey, man, I, I could spend like two hours just kind of digging in and, and, uh, and tapping down into this, but we're, we're kind of coming um, to the end of our time. I really appreciate you joining us. Um, I know that uh, there are some different ways that people can kind of find you and follow you. Um, I mean, I want to say again, you, you know, if you haven't gotten it and read it, you should get uh, The Coming Revolution in Church Economics. Um, it's a, a really good read and will really get you thinking. What are some other ways that people could follow you and or kind of get hold of you if they're, if they're interested in some consulting or discussion or whatever? 
Yeah, well, the, the, you know, first step is just basically, I'm easy to find on the web, but go through mosaics.info, M-O-S-A-I-X, uh, mosaics.info. You can set up a 30-minute call with me. Um, uh, of course, mosaics.info uh, has all our products and services, resources. But one thing I would, I would share with your group, uh, beyond the general, go to mosaics.info, easy to get a hold of me. But literally this week in Cincinnati, this is the second week of January in 2020, but we're launching what's called the Church Economics Accelerator. You can go to churcheconomics.org, churcheconomics.org. It'll tell you all about this five-month accelerator, which is going to basically hold the hands of pastors and walk them through this entire, it's basically like a business course for pastors. Mm -hmm. And and at the end of five months, you're going to know, you're going to come out the other side, not just thinking well, what could I do? We're going to help you figure out what to do to incorporate these principles, whether as a church planter on the missional side, mega church, wherever you're at in the, in the process, but we're going to walk you through it. We're going to, we partner with ocean in Cincinnati, a high tech accelerator company, but that launches once a month, five to seven pastors can go through that. It'll be, it's roughly 3,500 to $4,000 a per a church to go through that two or three people. It's three people per church. But I promise you, that's going to be the best 4000 or 3500 you could spend because that five months, you're going to come out and know how to get that money back and make more uh, in right. time. So it's not just like paying. It's actually an investment in your future. If you're a missional church planner and knowing what I know and you're interested in the topic Roland and I have been talking about, I tell you, getting two or three people, getting you know two other people in yourself and spending 3500 to 4000 to go through that accelerate could be the best thing you could do at the start of your church plant. Hmm. That's great. And are you going to be at Exponential? I will. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Love to meet people there. We have a pre-conference. I do a workshop on this. Glad to hang out. Uh, typically, our table forge and, and mosaics were around, so it really right. needs to make connections. But yeah, I'm more than happy to talk to people, meet people, encourage you in one way, one way or another. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, hey, man, I, uh, I appreciate your, your friendship, appreciate your time and your investment in, uh, in Forge and just kind of the missional discussion as well as just your care for sustainability of, of God's church. So I uh, appreciate you stepping out there and being a prophet on some of this stuff. Well, thanks so much. And again, thanks for having me and all the work you guys do, Alan, Forge, everybody, Jesse, Rich, just so uh, blessed by it. And uh, excited to know what you're doing and glad to be involved with you guys in advancing the kingdom. Well, thanks, man. All right. Well, thanks for being on and we will talk to you soon. All right. God bless. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, I want to thank Mark DeMoz for that conversation and encourage you to jump out to Amazon or any place that you buy books and grab The Coming Revolution in Church Economics, uh, Why Tithes and Offerings Are No Longer Enough and What You Can Do About It. Uh, Mark wrote that with Harry, who's a co-pastor of his, and um, it's a great book. It's out there on Audible as well, and um, if you hear this before Exponential, Mark's going to be at Exponential this year, and I know they're doing a breakout session on this, so be sure and look him up. And I know he does some consulting and some other things, so um, just uh, get out there and search his name and you can find him. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us each and every week here on the Forge American Missional Podcast. Uh, I would like to encourage you to go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating. That helps everyone find this podcast. So just jump out there and 
say something that you like about us. And we like that too, right, Alan? Yeah, I think we like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I always like it when somebody says something nice about me. Yeah, it makes us feel good. Um, <laughs> next say week. something nice about Terry, though. Okay, say yeah, something yeah. nice about Terry. Say something about, about Terry this week uh, since he wasn't here. Say something nice about him. We'd love to share that with him. Um, next week, we're going to have an interview with Dan White Jr. Dan is um, kind of attached to the V3 movement, kind of a sister movement of ours. Um, and he has a new book out called Love Over Fear, uh, which is really, really good and is very applicable to our times. So uh, he kind of explores how do you walk um, a middle road, you know, between politics and opinions and uh, theology and things like that and just walk loving people and love will always triumph over those things and so um, that's a really really good conversation that's coming up so we encourage you to join us next week on the Forge America Missional Podcast and we'll hopefully have Terry back with us until then Alan good to see you yep hey good to see you too and uh, don't forget to connect with us online at forgeamerica.com yep do that we'll see you next week bye City I'm learning to get past I'm learning to get past Is that okay? Yeah. Stick to that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right.